Okay, first things first again, um, we had a handout in the back. You should have been able to pick up on your way in. If you don't have one, Andy can get you one, but I think everybody's got one. Everybody got a handout? Or I should say, do you need a handout? You can raise your hand. We good? Okay, we're good. This is, um, this is session three, the last session um, that we had in this little series. Uh, let me just make... One comment about the, the books up here, we'll do a recap, and then we'll, we'll just move right into what we have for tonight. If you were here last week, the only, the only book that we added to the, to the table here is this one, which is not, not really even a, a parenting book. It's, uh, the name of the book is The Walk, Steps for New and Renewed Followers of Jesus. Uh, it's by a guy named Stephen Smallman. Um, the reason I, I wanted to bring this up and just uh, have it sitting here, it's um, if you're thinking in terms of kids, this would probably be more appropriate, like if your kids are in, uh, I, I'd say at least middle school, but maybe even high school, because it, it you know, tends to be geared more for adult converts. That's not to say that it's super heady or anything like that. That's actually the, the beauty of this book. This is, this is a great book, by the way, not just for, for you parents, if you've got older kids and, um, you know, you're just thinking, what, you know, what can we do for maybe a little, you know, refresher on some of the basics of the Christian life. But if you know anyone that's a new convert, or if you know anyone who, let's say, you know, for all intents and purposes, you know, probably was saved years ago, but wandered and strayed, and they're kind of coming back fresh and have a lot of ground to make up. This is, like it says, for new and renewed followers of Jesus. This is a, uh, a good little um, refresher. And I, um, I wanted to throw this up here uh, because similar to what we said in the very first session that we had, we tried to stress very hard um, that really the key, the, the foundation to all of this when it, when it comes to our involvement with our, with our children, recognizing, of course, the fact that, you know, ultimately this is God's work. We're stewards of our time, of our children, and we're just trying to be faithful. But having said that, recognizing our part in this process, uh, the very first thing that needs to be recognized is the fact that we ultimately have to be sold, captured, convinced of the truth of the gospel, our need for it, my need for it. And then out of that overflow, have that then filter down to spill over, if you will, onto my kids, because that's the way it's going to be most effectively communicated and taught. Um, that being said, then, um, if, you know, on my part, I'm sort of, you know, iffy, on some of the basics of the Christian life or, or what it should look like or maybe even how, um, what things maybe would be good to address with my kids as they're getting older. Um, this would, would be a, a book worth picking up and worth having, even though it's not specifically a parenting book, okay? I'll just say that and, and, uh, and leave that as it is. Um, let me open us up with a word of prayer and then we'll begin. Father, we pray that as we come to this session tonight that um, you would, on the one hand, um, convince us, convict us even if necessary, of our own inadequacies as parents to bring about the results that we're talking about here tonight when it comes to spiritual conversion and the new birth. 
Um, salvation belongs to the Lord, and that is not anything that we can give or withhold. It's not anything that we can force or manipulate. We want to be uh, faithful witnesses to our children. We want to speak clearly and in ways that are age-appropriate for their young minds to, to be able to understand, for their hearts to be able to, um, to soak in. Uh, but at the same time, we want to uh, be very confident and even expectant um, of the fact that uh, as we labor uh, for you in nurturing and training our children, that there will be good results that come from that. Help us to depend on you, to trust you, to wait for your work to, uh, to take effect, and uh, just help us to live out our Christian life in front of our kids with joy and with conviction, with humility and grace, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray, amen. So session, uh, session one was uh, the idea that uh, parents ultimately, um, when it comes to training or discipling your kids, that this is something that happens uh, um, just perpetually. The whole title of the series, Teaching and Talking Along the Way, taken from the Deuteronomy 6 passage, uh, where in Deuteronomy 6, the instruction given to the adults or given to the parents is, "These you shall love the Lord your God with all that you are, and these words I'm commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them to your children diligently. You shall talk of them when you wake up in the morning, when you're sitting, when you're rising along the way, so on and so forth. So it's not that there is a program time and place to do it, but this is something that's worked into the fabric of everyday life. I, I need to be so um, saturated with the truth of God's word and so uh, consumed by the work of Christ in my own life that it finds its way out into my daily talk or my, um, my interactions with my kids, not in the sense that, I, that, I, that I'm preaching to them every waking minute of the day. Oh my goodness, here comes another lecture from dad or here comes another sermon. But that I'm seizing on opportunities um, both in times that, that we have regularly scheduled, whether that's family devotional time or when that's time out with mom and dad or, you know, one or the other, I'm, I'm making regularly scheduled appointments, so to speak, to be able to interject these, um, these teaching opportunities. I'm looking for times in which uh, just life itself sort of drops in your lap a great opportunity to tie in just the mundane things of life to the reality of a Christian worldview or a Christian faith, recognizing that sometimes I'm not really going to be prepared for what hits me, all the more reason to continually soak myself in the truth of God's Word so that hopefully I become more skilled as I continue to lead and parent and guide and, and instruct, but it needs to be a, a way of life. Something that starts with me spills over to my kids. Uh, second session that we had was uh, working through this idea of house rules and particularly the notion that, uh, that law and grace are not, uh, are not in competition with one another. That when you look in scripture, law, the fact that God gave his people, his children, Israel, a law was a gracious thing. It was a communication and expression of his heart and mind. It was a way that he made them aware of what he was like, of what he desired from them. And it was a way for them to walk in harmony with the God who saved them. 
Similarly, when we have rules in the house, even beyond Ten Commandment type rules, like, okay, we, there's no lying in this house, there's no stealing, there's that, right? When we talk about other things, um, bedtimes and mealtimes and, and all of that, and we are teaching our children to obey, there is a very important sense in which especially at young ages, this is their first exposure to what it means to walk in harmony with their authority. Not because they fear that if they don't obey, they're going to be cut off and kicked out into the street, all right, no matter how much we may be tempted to do that at times, but simply because this is the way that life works. It is best for them when they live in the structure and order that their parents have provided for them because their parents love them. Their parents are giving them instruction and rules and commands, not so that they can tyrannically rule and micromanage all that they do and all that they think, but because they're looking to protect them and guide them and instruct them. And of course, as they grow and as they get older, there are ways in which the the details of those rules begin to expand and create a little bit more room and freedom for them to move as they grow and mature. But ultimately, their learning to obey us as parents is one of the ways in which they come to understand what it means to obey their heavenly father. And so if we don't allow for the fact that our children need to be brought up with an understanding of right and wrong, of obedience and disobedience, of uh, blessing and discipline, right? They have a much harder time then being able to make that connection to what Scripture says when it comes to walking in obedience, walking humbly before our God, and doing that with joy and gratitude, not as a sense of, you know, obligation or, or burden. Here tonight, we're um, shifting to really what the ultimate goal is, or we, we ultimate goal, ultimate desire of all of this, which is the desire that Christian parents should have to see their children step into the faith that they've been trying to impart to them, that their parents have been trying to impart to them. At the end of the day, even though I'm, I'm, I'm tempted to, to stray from this because of all the pressures of the world and because the world is constantly preaching to me in media, in print, in, right? I'm tempted to think, man, what I need to make sure my kids have is a good education, or I need to make sure they get a good job, or I need to make sure that they get a good spouse. Or No. At the end of the day, what my kids most desperately need is Jesus. Period. Yes, I don't want them to be, you know, unproductive members of society. God has no desire to have children who are lazy, who are selfish, who are, you know, narcissistic, you know, me first people. But at the end of the day, what does it matter if my son gets into Harvard all the while that he's heading to hell? What, what good is Harvard doing him when he stands before a holy creator and king and has to give an account for his rebellion and for his disobedience? Harvard doesn't matter at that point. A six-figure salary does not matter at that point. The cheerleader wife or the trophy wife or whatever doesn't matter at that point. Nothing matters at that point. And I have to come back over and over and over again because my, my heart and mind are tempted to drift in that way. 
towards these other lesser things and come back and say, no, the reason that I have these children under my roof for this period of time is first and foremost so that I can impart the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ to them. Now, having said that, we need to say very, very quickly a couple things. One, this, this session we're working off of the idea, hopefully this is sort of a picturesque way or a helpful way to think about what we're doing, midwifing the new birth. As hopeful and as desirous of I am that all of my children come to faith in Christ and find their righteousness in him and find themselves reconciled to the God that they've offended, there is nothing that I can do to make that happen any more than I can make a woman, my wife, go into labor. When it happens, it happens. There are things outside of my control that dictate or determine if and when this happens. I wanna say also that even though we're gonna talk, talk here about uh, almost as if it is a certainty that your, your child will come to know Christ, Understand, and I think we said this in the very first week, understand that we see all the way through Scripture the fact that there is no formulaic way in which we can guarantee success. Very godly men had very wicked children. And young children with, for all intents and purposes, absentee fathers or wicked fathers ended up being raised up to be very godly, very devoted to the Lord. So, I don't make this happen. You don't make it happen. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It is his gift. Nevertheless, nevertheless, we watch expectantly and we affirm, uh, I hated this one, affirm conscientiously. That's a horrible, horrible way to say it, but I, I, couldn't, I couldn't grab another word. So if you think of another one, Feel free to shout it out or tell me afterwards or something like that, and I'll, I'll go back and change it for the next presentation. Watch expectantly. By that, we mean this. Even though I can't go to chapter and verse and say, I am guaranteed that every single child will be brought to salvation and will walk faithfully with the Lord all the days of his life or all the days of her life, I still look in Scripture and I still see that that God himself is the one who has designed the home or who intends for the home to be the primary means by which future generations are brought into the kingdom of God. So when Paul says to fathers, and by extension parents in general, fathers and mothers, and is telling them not to provoke your children, don't exasperate them, don't be overbearing to the point that they just get frustrated with you, with life, and just throw their hands up and say, I don't care anymore. But raise them up in the fear and instruction of the Lord. Paul seems to clearly indicate that we should expect that our children will adopt, at some point in time, will gradually begin to own the faith that we're trying to impart to them. And when you look within the broader framework of Scripture especially in the Old Testament, because generational contact or generational, um, what, interdependence was much more, much bigger back in the ancient world. 
God seems to love to, to show his kindness to his people by blessing them for generations to come. By meaning, when he comes and when he, he calls Abraham to himself, one of the things that he promises to Abraham is that, yes, I'm going to give you many descendants. <clears throat> but as you continue to read, the real hope, the, the real joy in having many descendants is that these many descendants are going to belong to me in a special way, just like you have belonged to me. And so on the one hand, you get things like God saying, um, he's full of compassion and forgiveness, um, but he does not leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. Terrifying, right? But then in another passage, he says, but I grant loving kindness or I forgive, I show mercy to thousands for those who do walk with me. And the, and the contrast being this, whereas the generational punishment or curse in certain cases may be to the second and third generation, for those who walk with me, I'll bless thousands worth of generations to come. I, all that to say, I think what that, what that shows, what we see in Scripture, Old and New Testament, is that God has a desire, however we express this, a desire to bless through a family line. That's not a guarantee, but it is something that I can look for and that I can hope for. The second part, affirming whether we say cautiously or conscientiously, is that for all the hope and all the expectation I have that my children will begin to follow me on their own, that this faith will not just be the faith of their father and mother, but will become their faith as well, even though I'm looking and waiting for, for signs that that's happening, I don't want to assume too much such that any little glimmer of hope now becomes the time when I stamp them and say, saved, right? Oh my gosh, I told Johnny to go clean his room, and you know how much Johnny hates cleaning his room, and he just went back there and he cleaned it and he did so well. Jesus came and saved him. Maybe, or maybe he just has a show that he really, <laughs> really wants to watch, and he knows he's got to clean his room real quick before he gets to watch TV, right? So cautiously watch and try to discern what's going on, if not also for the fact that our children come to us with this innate desire. It's wired into them from an early, from an early age to please their parents. And that pleasing creates its own sort of challenges. We'll, we'll talk about that as we go on. Okay, we need, to, we need to move. Enough of the setup. All right, first and foremost. <clears throat> What is the gospel? There are two passages where Paul makes it abundantly clear that if anyone is going to be saved, it has to be that they're going to be saved by hearing and responding to the gospel. So, Romans 1.16, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, the gospel in other words, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. And then again in 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Now I make known to you, brothers, the gospel which I preached to you, 
which also you received, you received the gospel, in which you stand, by which also you are saved. So the big question right up front, if it's the gospel that is the power to salvation, and if it's the gospel, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, by which we are saved, what is the gospel? This becomes very intimidating to me when I take verses like this and I say, it's the gospel that saves us, and then I think, okay, so what does that mean? So that means if my kids don't get the gospel, they can't be saved. I better make sure I know what the gospel is, right? So we're going to start there because we don't want to assume that even at the most basic fundamental level, we've got questions or inconsistencies in terms of what the gospel actually is. All right, let me start here by laying it out with four questions. I don't think I gave this to you in your notes. Do, you have, do I have a, a spot for four questions? No? Okay, so you may need to flip over on the back or something like that and, and jot this down or anywhere that you can, um, that you can find it. Um, Haley, if you'll look on the, either on this pew back here or on the little podium out in the foyer. All right, four questions. Number one, who made us and to whom are we accountable? Who made us and to whom are we accountable? Answer, here's the point. Answering these four questions is essentially a way to go about communicating the gospel. That, that's why we're giving this in question form. And then I'll give it to you in answer form here in just a minute. Who made us and to whom are we accountable? Number two, what is our problem? Or you could say, are we in trouble and why? Who made us and to whom are we accountable? Number two, what is our problem? Or are we in trouble and why? Number three, what is God's solution to the problem? Or how has he acted to save us? What has he done about it? And number four, how do I, me, myself, how do I come to be included in that salvation? Or parenthetically or phrased another way, what makes this good news for me and not just for someone else? So Romans 1.16 and 1 Corinthians 15, when Paul talks about the gospel, the gospel basically is a catchword that means good news. It, it's a report. It's, it's not just simply a theological term because back in Paul's day, the gospel euangelizo, was something that you could even do in connection with Caesar. You could come and bring good news. Hey, good news, Caesar has liberated all of you by conquering your land, right? Oh, gee, thanks. Or Caesar has brought peace. It's good news. That kind of a concept, this good news or this good report, is what Paul is talking about. And the good news or the gospel basically addresses these four questions. If you want to jot down the name of this author, 
in this book. These, four, these are four questions that uh, Greg Gilbert gave in a, in a short little book, very readable, very helpful. If you ever wanna get your hands on it, the name of the book is What is the Gospel? And you get the answer to the question as you're reading through the book. Not a hard read, it's not super long, very practical, very helpful. So he says, here, here are four ways to work out sort of what, the gospel, what questions need to be answered when you're trying to figure out what is the gospel. And then he basically gives the answer to all four of these questions in a statement by saying this. So, so here's essentially the gospel in a nutshell, the good news. We are accountable to the God who created us. That's in response to the first question. We have sinned against that God and will be judged. That's the second question, though what is our problem question? But God has acted in Jesus Christ to save us. That goes to the third question, what has God done about it? And we take hold of that salvation by repentance from sin and faith in Jesus. And that's the answer to the fourth question. How do, I, how do I make this good news or how do I make this solution to the problem? How do I make it mine? So if we take all this and we bring it back to the issue of parenting and we bring it back to the idea that I'm wanting my children to come to salvation, to find the message of the good news to be what sets them free from future judgment. The things that I want my kids to know basically come down to those four things, that they, that they are here because God has made them and they are accountable to him. That too, even though they're accountable to their creator, they, just like their mom and dad, right? Throw, throw yourself in there very quickly. All of us, your mom and dad, you, your sister, your uncle, your aunt, your grand, all of us have disobeyed. We've broken his rules, we've broken his laws, we haven't worshiped him in the way that we should. We want ourselves to be the most important person rather than making God the most important person. And because of that, we deserve to be punished. But God has said that he will give our punishment to someone else, that he has given our punishment to someone else, Jesus, and that if we repent, turn from our disobedience and trust that he's already solved our problem, he makes everything good. Now, understand, even when we say this, Right, and, you, and most of you, especially if you're here as parents, you're probably thinking of this statement, these four questions, the, the little gospel in a nutshell, you're probably thinking about this in terms of how I'm going to do that with my kid. And, and if you have preschool kids, you're like, <laughs> well, that ain't gonna work because my kid can't even sit still for me to get out a complete sentence before their eyes are darting around the room or they're, you know, trying to escape and get off the couch and uh, it's okay, all right? Deep breath, relax. 
Here's, here's where we come back again to the issue of persistence and patterns. One of the things, one of the things that I, uh, no, because that's going to cut into, we'll come to that, we'll come to it in a minute. Let me just say this. Do take a deep breath. Your preschooler and or young children, grade school kids, some, heck, even as they get older, sometimes you wonder, I, I don't know if, if they're getting anything. When, when we talk about giving them the gospel, okay, it's, it's not essential that, that every single opportunity I have, I try to make sure I cram everything in, in that one moment. There may be times at which, depending on the situation or the circumstances, my opportunity is to hammer home just one of the four key elements to the gospel. So, if, um, not that it has to be done this way, but if uh, you, and the, you and the kids are on vacation, mountains, beach, something like that, and you're remarking about the beauty of what it is that you're seeing, or you're talking to your kids about the fact that God made all of this, and he made stuff like this and even more, made it so that we could enjoy it. And then maybe you just, quote-unquote, casually throw in there, you know, can you believe how good God is and how unthankful we are sometimes? Like some, you can even use yourself as an example. I love coming to the beach, seeing the ocean, but sometimes I come to the ocean and I don't even thank God that he made the ocean. Paul talks about that in Romans 1 that rather than honoring God and giving him thanks, they allowed their hearts to be darkened. They began to worship the created rather than the creator. Or if your kids are, are being disobedient, right? Maybe what they need to hear at the moment is just a reminder of the fact that not only have they broken house rules, but they've broken God's rule, God's command to honor your father and mother. You may not have an opportunity to go much beyond that. Although we need to be cautious that we don't hammer away on sin without also expressing and communicating the grace of God, right? My, my simple point is, don't feel like the only way to get the gospel into the hearts and minds of your kids is to give them everything every time you're going to bring it up. Depending on the situation, depending on the age, depending on your context, you may at different times only be able to give them a portion of it but because this is going to go on over and over and over again, those things are going to start to connect slowly but surely. All right, evangelism. By evangelism, please note, you evangelize your children simply by sharing, explaining, teaching the good news. We, somehow or another, we've kind of come to the idea that evangelism happens when someone is converted, and that's not the case. Evangelism is simply, if we can say it that way, is simply sharing or declaring the good news. So I evangelize my children whether they understand what I'm saying, whether they believe what I'm saying, whether they adopt what I'm saying or not, I at least am being faithful 
to witness and evangelize to my children regardless of what their response is. So on this part, we're just talking about that initial stage where I'm trying to get to them, communicate to them the gospel. I'm, I'm sharing the good news with them about our problem and God's solution. Number one, tips along the, along the way. Don't assume. This is especially important to, to emphasize if your children have the advantage of growing up in a home where they are going to hear the gospel, where they are going to have Bible stories told to them, where they do come to church on a regular basis and maybe they're in a good Sunday school class and, oh, they've got great teachers. They, maybe they go to a private Christian school or anything, right? I mean, there are tons of options out there and benefits and blessings that we can take advantage of. The danger, though, comes in when I assume that because they're around it so much, it just kind of seeps in by osmosis. Well, of course, Junior understands what the gospel is. He hears about it every Sunday when he goes to church. Does he? Further, even if he does hear it every time that he goes to church, or even if he hears it frequently at home, either in summary form or in bits and pieces, does he understand what he's hearing? I mean, he, he can hear it. He can maybe even repeat verbatim what you say to him. That doesn't necessarily mean that he has any concept of what it is that he's saying. Number two, or second Suggestion here, junk the jargon. Classic example, and please don't anyone freak out. Asking Jesus into your heart. I, I'm not saying don't use that language, but don't, the, 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 the difficulty, the, the dilemma with Christian jargon, especially coming from adults, to children is that we tend to have a better ability to use catchphrases or words as shorthand for larger concepts. And so because we know or we think we know what it means to ask Jesus into our, into our hearts, we assume, well, when I use that same language to my kid, here we go again, they hear us talk about this all the time. They hear it at church all the time. Of course they know what it means to ask Jesus into their hearts. With our kids, it's at times, it, I mean, it can be any, <laughs> anything from comical to frustrating to um, have them sort of parrot back words or phrases or something like that that they've picked up either from us or from church or something. And then just a simple question. Leo, what does that mean? What does it mean when you ask Jesus in, into your heart? I, I don't know. It, it just means you ask Jesus into your heart. Right? And you don't have the time, really. They don't have the capacity for you to be able to explain. Well, you can't really answer a question with the question rephrased as a statement. It, it doesn't work that way. But, it, but they, don't, they don't go any further than that. You, you can't assume that they know, and you also have to be careful that the language that you use, depending on how old your kids are, is not being used as shorthand that kind of glosses over 
a whole wealth of vocabulary that your kids don't even have, concepts that they haven't even begun to wrestle with. Don't assume that they know what sin means. Don't assume that they know what repentance means. Don't assume that they know what faith means. Don't assume that they know what it means to ask Jesus into your heart. Don't assume they know what the gospel means. Anything and everything. Junk the jargon. Be very direct. Be, be very explicit, especially when you're talking about younger children raising them up. They have to be able to have the, the opportunity to get these concepts down themselves. Third uh, suggestion in terms of evangelizing our kids. When we're taking the time to share the gospel with them or to share any aspect of the good news, whether whether it's in sharing with them or, or not, it's always good to find opportunities to ask questions. You, as a parent, ask them questions. And take it from someone who's, who's had to learn the hard way and whose wife has had to say, Merit, kids, you gotta be more specific than that, right? Don't just ask very broad questions like, do you understand what I'm saying? Yeah, that, right? They're just going to tell you, yeah, because they just want you to stop talking. You, you have to be much more specific. You have to think of ways. And this, this puts the onus on you as the parent also to make sure that you're able to go beyond jargon and beyond just little buzzwords and stuff like that. Because if you don't have a way to be able to explain it simply, you're not going to be able to ask good questions. You're not going to be able to draw them out with, you know, okay, now, what would you say if I said this? As our kids got older, I mean, sometimes it would be even as simple as, Seth, if, uh, if you had a friend come to you and said, I want to be a Christian, what, what would you tell them? And then you just sit back and listen. And sometimes they will fumble and fall all over the place trying to, and, and by the way, you'll hear a lot of buzzwords and catchphrases and stuff like that, Right, so like, oh well, I would just, I would tell them they need to ask Jesus into their heart. Well, what does that mean? What, what you know? I, I'm your friend. Let's let's pretend I'm your friend, Seth, and I say something like, "Ask Jesus into your heart." Well, I don't know. What does that mean? How does that happen? Follow up with questions so that you give them an opportunity to be able to articulate for themselves what it is that you're trying to get them to understand. Their ability to put into their own words what you're trying to teach them is a good indication that they're starting to get, at least conceptually, we're not, we're not assuming yet that it's dropped down into the heart convictionally, but at least conceptually asking questions, age-appropriate questions and giving them an opportunity to respond is a great way to be able to feel your child out to know whether or not they're getting what it is that you're trying to give them. So don't just make it a lecture, ask questions, let it be conversation, let it be discussion, and see how that goes. And then uh, one here, this is not a one and done thing. The name of the game is repetition. It's, all of us as parents recognize that even if you're talking about just uh, habits that we're trying to instill into our kids, like trying to teach them to pick up after themselves. They get a toy out, you know, pick it up and put it back where it belongs. 
on Monday, lo and behold, they go through the whole day. And my little first grader, every time they got a toy out, they picked the toy up and they put it away. And you're hearing the hallelujah chorus and oh, this is starting to pay off. We're finally over the hump. Tuesday comes, they don't put anything back. And you're having to go back and you're having to say to them over again, every time you get a toy, you cannot leave it on the floor. It has to go back in the toy box or it has to be taken back to your room again or it has to be put back on the shelf, right? We do that with everything else when it comes to training our kids. We have to do it when it comes to the gospel as well. Even when it seems like our kids are starting to get it, don't assume. Don't think that one good exchange, in other words, is all you need to get from them and now we can move on to bigger and better things or now I can move from this child to child number two. Okay, he's got it. He gave me a good answer. We're good. Over and over again, this stuff has to be repeated either as you're sharing with them or as you're asking them questions, even if you're going to run the risk of them getting tired of hearing the same thing over and over again. With this, with this idea that, that evangelizing our children is sharing with them the good news. All right, let me just, four things that we found to be helpful concepts or things that as we're trying to communicate the gospel with our kids, four things that we, we try to keep in mind. Number one, the issue of faith, biblical faith, being synonymous with the idea of trust. Classic text for this is when James is talking about faith without works, and he makes that statement, right? You believe, pistuo, you believe that God is one? Great. So do the demons. Heck, they even shudder. It affects them emotionally, what they believe about God. Is that saving faith? Belief that the Bible is true? No, rather, when the Bible talks about faith, it means faith in the sense of not just mere belief, although that is part of it, faith in the sense of trusting when, when you say, this is, this is what Scripture is moving us towards as we see what God has done in Christ, it's not merely believing that the Son of God took on human form, lived a perfect life, suffered the crucifixion, died, was bodily raised, ascended to the right hand of the Father. That has to be believed, no doubt. But I have to trust that that truth can save me. So, when we talk to our kids, when you talk to your kids about believing in Jesus, also take the opportunity to look for moments when you can even use something like trusting in Jesus. Because it's very easy for this idea of belief, of faith, just to stay conceptually as this idea of I agree with a fact or I agree with a claim. But agreeing with a fact or a claim is not the same thing as trusting that that claim has a direct impact or bearing on your life. So my faith or my belief in a biblical sense needs to be a trust. So when I'm calling my kids to have faith 
in God or to put their faith in Christ, what I really want them to understand is I'm asking them to trust that what Christ has done for them can save them. Don't trust yourself. Don't trust your own efforts. Trust, believe this. Number two, substitution. These are, and by the way, these are things that kind of help you get beyond the, beyond the jargon or the catchphrases. To talk to your kids about the, the idea of substitution, that Christ dying on the cross, that he died as a substitute, he died in my place. So that part of the gospel is coming to a greater realization and understanding that what happens at the cross is that Jesus put himself in my place. That what happened to Jesus on the cross should have happened to me were it not for the fact that Jesus moved me out of the way and stepped in himself. So substitution very closely related to that. Very closely, there we go. Talking about substitution and exchange. Uh, oftentimes it's very easy for us to talk about salvation in terms of forgiveness and forgiveness only. But that's, that's only part of the good news. The other, the other part of the good news is that what we get is, is forgiveness for what we've done, but we also get all these other things that we haven't done. So I trade my disobedience for Jesus' Perfect obedience, the great exchange. That's, that's what I need. I, I need a trade. I trade my punishment for Jesus' reward. I trade my life for his life, which goes to the idea of I'm no longer living for myself. I'm living now the life that Christ himself would live because I've, I've traded I've given up my life so that I can take on his life. So communicating to our kids the idea that what happens in salvation is that because Jesus stood in as our substitute, we're now able to trade places with him in almost every sort of conceivable way. And then also, our kids need to understand that when we're talking about the good news in Jesus Christ, the good news is not that God does this singular thing for you or this one event. Like the gospel is what you believe at this particular moment and okay, that's good. You've got the gospel, check it off. Or that Christianity is essentially all about this pivotal event in your life. Rather, the Christian life is just that. It is a way of life. So that when I talk to my kids about what God does in Christ, yes, he saves me from the punishment of sin, but I also want to start, start to talk to them, especially as they get older, I also want to talk to them about the fact that when he saves me from the punishment of sin, he also saves me from the power of sin, which is why I can talk to my kids about resisting temptation and why I can talk to them about why obedience is still a crucial part of the Christian life even after I know that I've been forgiven. 
Because salvation is this great, huge gift that you can't chop up and compartmentalize as if, well, I'll take the forgiveness part, right? Freedom from the punishment, but nah, the freedom from the power part, nah, yeah, I don't really care. Leave that for someone else. No, you get all of it or you get nothing. You get all of Jesus or you get nothing. And what Jesus offers is freedom from the punishment of your sin, also freedom from the power that sin has over you, which means I can now live increasingly a life that looks more and more like Jesus. I can live a life that is more and more pleasing to the God who saved me as I continue to to walk on and move forward. Okay, so you've done the faithful, long, at times tedious work of trying to seize on every opportunity, of trying to program into your life inside the home and out, trying to program opportunities into sharing the gospel with your kids, the good news about their problem and how God has solved that because of Jesus. And then comes the big $64,000 question, how do I know that they've actually been saved? Right? Okay. And the short answer is, I don't. God does. That doesn't mean that I don't look for things, though. Here are things, um, we are, we're sort of, we've got a foot in both worlds in, in our parenting right now. We've got kids who we believe have had a new birth, have been converted, and we've got kids that we're still waiting on to, to see that happen. For the ones that we believe have had that conversion experience and for the ones that we're still waiting on, here's some of the things that, that we're looking for as ways to be able to affirm some of the things that they say when they claim, I asked Jesus into my heart. Here, here's some of the things that we're looking at. Number one, can your child articulate the basic truth of the gospel? If Paul says in Romans 1 and 1 Corinthians 15 that it's the message of the gospel that saves us, that coming to hear of the problem and the solution that God gives us in Christ, if we have to hear that in order to be saved, is it possible that your, your child can be saved without knowing what the good news is? I don't think so. So if, if one of our kids comes to us and says something like, Daddy, last night I asked Jesus into my heart, which by the way could happen any number of times. Again, kids are programmed to seek the approval and the pleasure of their parents. And when they, they're very sharp, right? I, I say this in a good way. They're very sharp. When they, when they begin to recognize that asking Jesus into your heart is this big, exciting thing that everybody loves to, to see and hear, hey, I want to make mom and dad happy. So I'll ask Jesus into my, don't have a clue what's going on. But they'll tell you. Now, Maybe they have. Here's, here's one of the things that, that I want to I I ask them. Something like, okay, what, what do you mean you asked Jesus into your heart? Or 
What, is it, what do you mean when you say that God saved you? Now, I am not looking f- to hear from them block quotations from Calvin's Institute, Institutes on the Christian Religion. I'm not looking for that. I'm not looking for chapter and, chapter and verse necessarily. I'm not looking for theological jargon. What I am looking for, though, is that they have... at at whatever age or level they're at, that they have some basic understanding of what it is that they're talking about beyond just a catchphrase or a buzzword. So can they articulate the basic gist of the gospel, the fact that they're a sinner, the fact that it's Jesus that saves them because of what he's done on the cross? Second question, has your child shown signs of conviction and or signs that they've recognized that he's recognized his need for salvation. If you think through the, the four elements of the gospel message, right, it started off, the first two started off with the fact that there is a, a God, there is a creator to whom we owe everything, to whom we're accountable. And number two, that we have disobeyed our creator, and we stand under his judgment or his punishment. The good news is the good news because there is bad news first. If there is no bad news, you don't have good news, you just have news, right? The fact that you say something is good news implies that there is bad news. If my kids do not know bad news about themselves... Namely, that they are guilty of sin and disobedience, that they have broken God's laws, that they have um, not made him the center of their lives. Again, however they phrase it or conceptualize it, however they communicate. If, if they don't have any sense of that, I'm going to be very, very cautious at assuming they've come to salvation because what are they coming for? If they don't believe that they need something from God, if they don't know, if they don't recognize, if they don't show some awareness of personal guilt because of their sin, I'm going to be very, very slow, extremely cautious to assume that they know experientially, heart and mind, that they know what they're talking about when they say that they've asked God to save them if they don't know what they're being saved from. So, have they shown signs of remorse over their sin, over their disobedience? That will look differently depending on the child and his or her temperament, depending on their age, but there should be some sign or some indication that you're able to see that they are beginning to understand that sin is not just something out there, it's something that I'm battling in here in myself. Uh, Three, does your child desire salvation? By this, we simply mean be very careful that you don't manipulate a conversion or a new birth. By the way, you can't. We can't. But we act like that sometimes when we we more or less kind of walk our, so-called walk our kids into salvation And then because they've said everything that we wanted to hear and they've done everything that we would expect them to do, 
Therefore, we, we count it good. Oh, yeah, Anthony was saved. You know, I talked to him this, and I had him repeat back to me everything that I said to him, and I knew then that he... Uh. Rather, I should be looking to see that as they come to greater awareness of what the gospel is, as they become convinced of the fact that they are sinners in need of salvation, if all that is happening to them, truly happening to them, God in his mercy gives them the desire to be saved from the sin that they're becoming aware of. I, listen, I'm not going ha- to be hands-off, and I'm not going to try to guide them. I'm not going to try to direct them. I'm not, it's not that I'm not going to point them to answers. I am going to do all that. But I'm, I'm going to be very, very conscientious with God as my witness and with his help and assistance that I'm not doing anything that would manipulate them into saying or doing anything that they are not showing a genuine personal desire to do themselves. Sometimes that can be as simple as looking to see if they show the initiative in entering into a conversation or in asking a question. The, thing, the things that my kids are thinking about, little insignificant things to big momentous things, because of the fact that we're trying to create an environment where there's constant dialogue and discourse and, and stuff like that, more often than not, if something is weighing on my kid's heart and mind, I'll hear about it eventually. Maybe not immediately, but I will eventually. And I can guarantee you, this, this is because God is good. I can guarantee you, if your child has become convinced of the truth of the gospel, God is not going to leave them to dangle. He will, in grace and in mercy, he will give them a desire to have that debt settled. They will want to know, how do I get out from under this, con- this conviction? How do I get out from under this sense that I'm not right? They're going to express it in different ways, but do they show a desire to have what it is that you've been showing them rather than you just kind of force-feeding them or manipulating the situation? And then here's a big one. Here's a big one. Does your child show signs of new life? In one sense... In one sense, the, the first three, like, you know, can they articulate the gospel uh, or the basic truth of the gospel? Um, do they show signs of conviction? Do they show a desire for salvation? All of those things, you know, uh, you, I mean, you can go around and round in circles on that, and, and we have with our kids. This last one, though, is, is crucial. If my child has had a new birth, they've become a new person, they will show signs of being new. Not perfect. Not theologian status. Not anything like that. But there will be signs of new birth. Sometimes that'll mean they'll show a new sensitivity to sin. 
which is sort of odd because, right, hopefully if they've been converted, if they've had new birth, they, they believe that they've been forgiven of their sin, but we all recognize Christian life is not just a one-time repentance, it's a life of repentance. So even if my child has had a new birth, that doesn't mean that they're not going to be concerned about sin anymore. Rather, I should hope to see a new sensitivity to sin. They should show, hopefully, a greater desire to learn about God, the faith, a desire for Scripture. There should be... um, even though it's small and it happens in fits, dare we say it, even maybe greater love or kindness to their siblings. No, not perfect, not right, but something along those lines. Even just glimmers of hope. They, if, they've been, if they've been born again, they will show signs of a new life. Not in its totality, not in its fullness, but that should be something that we're looking for. And then we need to start to run through these quickly because of, uh, because of time. Once they have come to salvation, once you, if you believe and you're being humble, you're praying for discernment, asking for God, God, confirm this for us, please be good, show us that you know, give us a confidence that what they're saying, what they're professing is true. So let's, let's assume for the sake of the argument that that has happened, that you've watched, that you're, you're discerning, you're looking, you believe it's happened. Your, your job is not done, especially if they're still in the house because now you want to capitalize on that new birth and you want to make the most of all the time that you have left with them living under your roof to encourage their growth in their faith and their growth in Christ. So, one, I think we've already alluded to this, you want to try to, con- uh, try to convey to your children the idea that coming to the saving knowledge of Christ does not mean that I repent and trust one time, but that the Christian life is characterized from beginning to end by repentance and faith. I am always going to be repenting of the sin that I commit even after I have come to be forgiven for that. I'm still gonna confess and I'm still gonna repent and I'm still gonna have to go back over and over again and trust that even when I fail 10 times out of 10, I'm gonna trust that the work of Christ is sufficient for me because I can't be a sufficient savior for myself. They're never gonna get away from repentance and faith just like we shouldn't be getting away from repentance and faith. Second, spiritual disciplines. We, we know this in terms of like interacting with adult converts, but when someone comes to faith in Christ, what does not happen is that God doesn't supernaturally sort of hook them into a mainframe and then just download everything that they need to know about what it means to live the Christian life. Discipleship comes in. And your children need to hear about what Christians do, not in a legalistic sort of way, but they need to hear about things that characterize life in Christ, love, forgiveness, kindness to others, spending time in the word. Why is that important? Why do you need it? How does that bring you closer to Jesus? Spending time in prayer, 
being around other Christians, having an opportunity to share your, your faith with some of your friends or some of your neighbors or something like that. They need to understand what the spiritual disciplines are that will continue to stimulate their growth and their faith, not just for the moment, but for years to come. Number three, our kids need to be brought to a very early realization that conversion does not mean that we no longer have struggles when it comes to sin. If anything, it means that the battle has just begun because prior to my new birth, the thing that I did most easily and the thing that I loved to do most was sin. I didn't have to think about it. I didn't have to wish for it. I didn't have to try for it. It was just the easiest thing. It was like waking up in the morning. I'd just do it. Now, all of a sudden, though, because of my new life in Christ, I have a new awareness of what sin is. There's a recognition that it's something that I don't like, and I shouldn't be enjoying it, but all of a sudden, I, I feel like there's a certain amount of turmoil, depending on how old your kids are, because I shouldn't be liking this sin, but I, I, I do still kind of like the sin. And so your kids need to know early on and then for their adult life that, listen, the fact that you could still enjoy sin does not mean that you're not a Christian. The fact that you struggle with sin does not mean that you have not been saved. In fact, Romans 8, Galatians 5, the fact that you battle with sin may be one of the greatest signs that you have been saved. Because if you weren't a Christian, you wouldn't care. counting the cost, especially as, as our kids get older and they start moving into, well, I mean, it happens in grade school too, but especially as they start moving into middle school and high school, we have to start talking to our kids about the fact that following Christ, being counted as someone who is in him, that it will come with a cost. We talk to our kids, for example, about the fact that, becoming a, that being a Christian at times will mean that you could potentially lose friends. And that in those instances, being a Christian means that given the choice, you will cling to Christ and not to your friends. We let our kids know that the cost of following Christ means that you will not indulge in certain behaviors or certain activities that you might want to pursue or participate in, either because of where it could lead you or because it is just outright sin, that there is a dying to self that happens. So our kids need to know, young and as they continue to grow, that the Christian life is not easy and that it does come at a cost. But, please don't leave this part out, but compared with the return, compared with the return, the cost is cheap. I would rather lose a friend than lose Christ because of what I gain in Christ. I would rather lose a promotion than lose Christ because the promotion represents a tiny tick of a percentage point in income. 
Christ means eternal riches. I would rather lose, give up, comfort, and cling to Christ because in the end, I get eternal joy and pleasure that will never be taken away from me. So yes, the Christian faith, being united to Christ, will come at a cost because you die to yourself daily, because you die to the world, because you have to make sacrifices. But I want to also convince my kids, listen, counting the cost is not something that comes just in mere drudgery or gritting your teeth. I count the cost and I'm willing to pay that because I recognize that the reward far, far outweighs anything that I may pay in the here and now. Okay? All right, tell me real quick because I don't have this on the PowerPoint. Do I, do I have on your notes baptism and communion? Okay. Can I do this very quickly? like talking about what to do with kids when it comes to baptism and communion. And hear me on this. I'm going to try to take, well, I'm going to try to thread the needle and kind of tell you where I lean on some, <laughs> on some of these without being too overly committed on it because I recognize that there are differences of opinion and that, you know, godly men and women, you know, kind of fall all over the map here. All right. Number one, um, do consider the differing perspectives on whether or not children should be baptized, whether or not they should participate in communion. If they do, when should they be baptized? When they should participate in communion? Um, I, would, I would say this. This is sort of where I am personally right now. This is not binding on anyone else, okay? If, if I had a child come, one of my children come to me and say that, that they had been saved, you know, whatever lingo they used, and if they showed signs of faith and, and all that, fruit, repentance, everything, my lean right now is that I'm, I'm going to be a little bit slow when it comes to, to baptism and communion for, for this reason, because I recognize that it's very, very easy especially living in a Christian home, church environment, it's very easy to take on the appearance of those things without conversion actually happening. And so sometimes when a second or third grader who's converted, it's not that I doubt them. If anything, it's that I don't find myself to be fully confident. And so for their benefit and for mine, I'm gonna be very slow about whether or not I, I bring them to be baptized because I, I want to really see, I want to try to have as their parent as much confidence for me because they're going to take my confidence in their profession as an affirmation. Do you understand what we mean by that? If, if they believe that I believe they're a Christian, that's going to carry a lot of weight with them. And at times that could short circuit any kind of introspection or examination that they need to have because, well, mom and dad believe I'm a Christian and so I don't need to rehearse. I don't need to go back over it. So I tend to lean towards the idea that I'm, I want to be able to see my kids feel the pull of the world, if it 
you know, if you can say it that way, and, sh- and see that they, that they have an, an understanding of things like sin, righteousness, judgment, holiness, and that they're beginning to live that out before I just quickly bring them to be baptized. Okay, so if, if I had a second or third grader, I might, I might wait a little while until I brought them to be baptized. The other thing is, when it comes to communion, um, and I've, we've been on one side of this, I'm, I'm starting to lean a little bit in another direction right now. We had, uh, I think it was Anthony and Sean, participating in communion before they were baptized. Is that right? Okay. The horror. Um, I don't know if, if I would do that, if I would do that anymore because I, if, if I'm going to be, be very cautious and slow with baptism, I don't think it makes much sense. I don't think it, it's very coherent to say you can enjoy the benefits of the Lord's Supper, but you can't enjoy the benefits of baptism. Not yet. You can participate here, but I'm not going to have you participate here. Also, when I look in Scripture, the sequence seems to be baptism is the very first act of Christian obedience. As a result of my conversion, the very first thing that happens in the New Testament is baptism. I think when you look at the baptism passages in the New Testament, I think you come away with the idea that the early church had no concept of a Christian who was not baptized. They, they would, if you asked about that, they would not know what you were talking about. Why, why would a Christian not be baptized? Can you even be, because it was just a given. That's what you did. And then that act of obedience, signifying your inclusion into Christ, and by extension, his body, then was followed up with communion to come after that. So baptism was always the first step. So that being said, if I'm going to lovingly drag my feet a little bit on the baptism, I think probably I would want to drag my feet a little bit on communion as well. So if I'm going to do that, by all means, let's have the kids dunked and then have them enjoy, you know, the blessing of the Lord's Supper, and try to follow the biblical pattern as, as best we can. But again, that's, that's more of a personal thing for me. There are other people who say, no, listen, if they show a credible profession of faith, doesn't matter how old they are, have them baptized. Because that's what Scripture lays out. And, I, you know, I'm okay. I'm not going to lose sleep on that particularly. Yeah, I won't. I might argue, but no, I just, I wouldn't argue either. Okay, that's it. We're going to wrap up here. We've gone well over what I thought we would. Thank you so much for being here, especially for you who have been here for all three sessions. You're welcome to take a look at these books. Um, Let me close this out with a word of prayer and we will be done. Father, at the end of the day, we desperately need you to give us the ability to be godly parents, to be wise parents, to be faithful parents, especially when it comes to imparting our faith to our children in such a way that they take it on and adopt it for themselves. Would you give us discernment to be able to rightly understand the hearts and minds of our children, to be able to see where it is that they're coming from? And Father, just in your, just out of sheer goodness to, to give us the added blessing of reasoned confidence 
that uh, at the time when our children do really truly come to saving faith in Christ, that you would give us the added assurance as their parents, as their guardians and the stewards of these, uh, of these eternal souls, that you would give us the confidence to be able to affirm that and to be able to rejoice with them. Help us to continue to encourage our kids uh, in the faith, um, not to throw water on any kind of burgeoning fire that, uh, that you have put within their spirit. And we just trust at the end of the day that as we walk faithfully, that you will be kind to bring about fruit. Help us to continue to cry out for that over and over and over again. And it's in the name of Jesus that we ask it. Amen.